HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Yes, it is, Lonzo. What day is it? It's Friday. That means Farm Report, sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Today we've prepared a really special 4th of July-themed Farm Report. Heather, I'm pretty excited. You? Me as well. American-centric for sure. The uh, we're, doing a, we're doing a show with Colleen Rapp, who is the chairwoman for the ALBC, the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy. And just to, uh, to give you a brief... A brief primer on what the Conservancy does. Um, the LBC is a not-for-profit membership organization that works to protect over 150 breeds of American livestock and poultry from becoming extinct. These breeds are threatened because agriculture is changing. As, as we all know, modern food production now favors the use of a few highly specialized breeds selected for maximum output in controlled environments. Also and, known as like the commodity market. for Right, sure, sure. And uh, many traditional livestock breeds have lost popularity and are threatened with extinction. And if we lose these these breeds, we're going to essentially lose a sense of of terroir that comes with our meats. I mean, a feeling of place, a feeling of history, a feeling of culture. And meats will be drained of their spiritual and emotional value. Um, And uh, we have a good friend of the network, Brian Kenny. He likes to remind us that the past is indeed our future. So if we don't keep these breeds alive, where will we be in the next 10, 20, 50, 100,000 years? (laughs) Well, 100,000. 100,000. There might be no such thing thing as a breed. What we'll be driving at is the way in which the production of these heritage breeds has gained its independence from mass production of other breeds. Heather, what are some of the breeds and species the ALB protects? Um, The ALBC works to protect endangered breeds of livestock, just like Lorenzo said. Um, They work to protect different uh, breeds of cattle, goats, horses, pigs, rabbits, uh, which Colleen Rapp, um, the guest we'll be speaking with very shortly, has worked very hard to protect, um, as well as sheep. And I didn't mention turkeys, but definitely turkeys. Um, Some of the animals... um, uh, you, as our listeners, have probably heard us speak about before. We recently interviewed um, the Prisky family, who raises the Highland breed of uh, the Highland breed of cattle. That's actually um, an English breed, and therefore also apt for this program because of its uh, British roots. And uh, you know, today uh, we are trying to celebrate um, the beginning of the Fourth of July weekend when America gained its independence uh, from England. So- oh, is that is that who? We gained our independence from England. <laughs> Thank you, Lonzo. 
Um, also um, popular among the farmers that Heritage Foods works with, we uh, work to protect pork breeds like the red wattle, which is uh, actually listed um, on the ALBC as critically endangered, um, as well as the Tamworth breed. Um, which falls under the uh, category of threatened. These uh, categories that they put them under critically threatened, they um, basically measure the amount of numbers of these animals that are still in registration and in production in our country. So the fact that you can count um, that only, you know, 2,500 of these um, Tamworth pigs or red wattle pigs are even in existence is pretty scary um, that, for the future of our food supply. Um, I actually don't have the statistics right in front of me, but yes, some of these critically endangered breeds are indeed in that small production numbers. So is that, is there constantly, say, let's say there's 2,500 Tamworth pigs in, in the United States, that number stays stays consistent and there's a, a constant rotation of killing and, bre- and breeding, right? Yes, and you know, we hope to be able to bring on more growers um, and breeders of these of these, you know, endangered breeds by sharing the genetics that have been, you know, maybe through selective breeding um, bred to produce, you know, the best meat quality and the best muscle structure and the best fat for the breed of, you know, whatever breed we want to be speaking of. So we have people like Frank Reese who, you know, tries to save all these endangered breeds of the chicken so that one day we don't just have the one, you know, broad-breasted white turkey and just one kind of chicken and one thing comes along and gets uh, the one kind of breed of chicken sick and there's no other DNA or biodiversity in our food supply to protect, uh, you know, what was once a bountiful supply of different breeds brought over from different countries. So we'll get into that in just a bit. Um, but Well, it's definitely true that these rare breeds are part of our national heritage and they represent a unique piece of the Earth's biodiversity. And uh, as someone who, with her- who works with Heritage Foods and is working towards a similar goal as the ALBC, and has sort of an eat them to save them philosophy. What do you think it will take for these breeds to achieve independence from mass consumption, from mass, from mass production? I think the best thing we can do to um, really declare our independence as a heritage movement, as opposed to the commodity movement, is to continue to educate consumers and uh, producers to why it is important to take the extra time, care, and effort, and interest in these endangered heritage breeds. So why don't we um, get Colleen on and uh, learn a little bit about her role with the ALBC, and uh, she can give us um, a nice, uh, you know, give us some enlightenment onto how we can talk further about the importance of saving the heritage breeds. Colleen, are you there with us? I'm here. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you today? Just really good. Wonderful. We're very happy to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right. Well, what did you think of our brief introduction of the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy? Did you want to maybe add a little something to that or give us an idea of what you've done with the ALBC and what the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy actually really does uh, in addition to what we just outlined? Sure. Um, The American Livestock Breeds Conservancy was the first organization that actually took a look at how much genetic erosion had taken place uh, over the shift from um, the small family farm to industrial agriculture. The ALBC was founded in 1977, and and since then, um, they're proud to say there have been no breeds of livestock that have become extinct, which wasn't the case up until the ALBC was founded. Um, There had been a few that had just kind of gone by the wayside, got forgotten about and ceased to exist. 
And so um, the ALBC's mission statement is, um, I think, pretty eloquent. It's ensuring the future of agriculture through genetic conservation and the promotion of endangered breeds of livestock and poultry, which, you know, you guys pretty much already hit uh, most of that on the head. But that's uh, what the ALBC wants to try to do. So when you talk about preserving the genetics of these breeds, how do you do that? On like a farm to farm level, I mean, do you well, do you hire scientists and professionals? Well, there's several things that the ALBC does. Um, they do a lot of research programs to actually get out in the field and see exactly what is there. It's difficult to conserve something unless you know exactly, um, you know, what it is, what it looks like, what its uh, DNA is, and so they've actually done some field research to do that. They've participated in some genetic studies that have, um, you know, tracked the phenotype of a lot of these breeds to see how, how different they are from the industrial stocks. Uh-huh. Um, they do a lot of education. Um, you know, they've got a lot of materials on their website that's available just free of charge to anybody who wants to go there. They've actually facilitated some breed rescues that have actually literally saved some populations of some of these breeds from becoming extinct. And is that so by, they, like, connecting one farmer to another? Um, yes. And um, just kind of basically being a clearinghouse for information. You know, the Internet's a, kind of a double-edged sword, but in this case it can be a wonderful thing because it can connect people all over the country who have an interest and who can help. And so they've been able to do some pretty cool things to actually literally save these breeds. Right. And one thing that I find very interesting, especially, you know, with these heritage breeds and with farming in general, I mean, I, I personally am not a farmer, but I do work very closely with them, is learning that certain breeds really only are able to be raised in certain climates and, you know, in certain parts of the world. So you also have to keep that in mind when you are trying to connect, you know, people and breeds and keep them alive. So that must be a challenge, too, with the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy is keeping, you know, these uh, populations alive, but also in an area where they can, you know, continue to breed. Right. Oh, that's exactly the case, because like you were talking about, you know, the breeds having a terroir and, uh, you know, a Scotch Highland is going to be miserable in southern Florida, but a Florida Cracker or a Piney Woods is going to thrive because that's the climate and the environment that they've adapted to. So, you know, it's all real important, and that's where the research and the education comes in, is being able to know what works and what doesn't. I got you. I got you. Well, <clears throat> I, have a, I have a question about differentiating indigenous from heritage, and this is something that's sort of been on my mind, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of our listeners share the same curiosity about this topic. Okay. Since most of these breeds aren't, quote-unquote, indigenous to North America, right, why are they considered mm-hmm. heritage? And what makes them such an integral part of the history of American food and agriculture? I mean, this is basically a launching pad for, for this topic of which, how, how and if at all any animal is indigenous to any one area or if they were brought over during the, the first you know, trade trips or like brought, just, like, just like all food, food cultures began with the complex exchange you know, thousands of years ago. So how did some right. of these animals make their way onto this soil and are they indigenous to this soil, and what, what makes them a heritage? Well, um, I mean, you're right. Actually, most of the breeds of livestock we're familiar with aren't indigenous to North America. The only one is really the turkey. Everything else was an import of some kind. But if you look back along the history of domestication, it's pretty parallel to the history of civilization. Uh-huh. I mean, as these breeds were domesticated and became part of the, the human culture and the human experience, you know, they adapted and learned to live with humans. And so, 
you know, they've been with us as long as we have really, you know, been civilized, so to speak. Sure, sure. So, so it's a heritage know, breed because it was here when the Native Americans were here. Well, yes. And, I mean, their heritage because, you know, like, say, for example, the Milking Devon, some of those cattle actually came over on the Mayflower with the Pilgrims. Huh. But, like, the United States has been a melting pot for human culture. It's kind of also been a melting pot for some of these breeds. They came over, but they also adapted to the environment that they found themselves in. And um, as, you know, as they adapted, they became part of the culture here in the United States. So while, you know, like us, we have our roots in Europe and other countries, so do they. But we have all kind of attained a unique character that's part of our own heritage. Very eloquently put, Colleen, I must say. Um, what are some of the companies and distributors that are doing the most to help protect these breeds? Do any chefs come to mind that are really helping the movement along restaurants? Um, well, we've worked with a few chefs and restaurants, but a few of the organizations that come to mind, I mean, the first one is Heritage Foods, of course, because you guys have a tremendous web presence and you're able to you know, reach out to a lot of the end consumers of these products because I can raise the best rabbits in Kansas, but if I can't get them to New York or to where somebody knows about them and wants to use them, uh-huh. you know, it's really not going to do that much good. So I think Heritage Foods has done a lot to raise the awareness of these breeds and just, you know, how tasty they are. Right. And infrastructure, I mean, you're completely 100% correct. That is one of the biggest challenges. And I know that when um, Heritage Foods USA got started, it was because of the, you know, actual, the heritage turkeys, which are indigenous to America, and, you know, because of Frank Reese and the relationship with Slow Food USA and, you know, Patrick Martins, the founder of Slow Food USA, and then the co-founder of Heritage Foods USA, we were able to really market these turkeys to the members of that Slow Food organization, and they were like the first consumers and, you know, real first believers um, outside of, you know, small farming communities to understand the importance of, you know, paying a little bit more more for something that's been raised really humanely and uh, right. really going to give you something truly special and different that reminds you of something that you've possibly tasted if you're old enough to remember eating before the Industrial Revolution when our food right. system changed. And right. if you're not apple. old enough, you've got your grandma eating with you and telling you that, you know, this is the turkey that I used to make when I was uh, cooking, you know, before I got right. married, however many years ago that may have been. Right. Yeah. And that's a, that's a real important point point is because we have lost any sort of relationship with what food really should be. I mean, you know, the, there used to be thousands As and opposed thousands to European varieties. countries, though, or as opposed to some other countries, I must say. I, I think so. I think that's really kind of a problem here in the United States. I think there's definitely more of a, a feel in Europe and other countries of that sense of history. You know, and we are still relatively a young country. You know, we might sure. get there in time, but I do think that's one thing that we're kind of missing right now. Yeah, I mean, if you go to Europe now and you you, you know you start talking with <clears throat> with with the, with someone in France or in Italy, they don't see what the big whoopee is about this food movement in the United States. It's all <clears throat> it's all sort of there's a tacit understanding in Europe that this is the way food system should work. Right. You know, capitalism and and profiteering have never infiltrated their their systems to the extent that they have here. Right, I think that's very true. Um, well, that actually, it's funny, it ties right back into, you know, Slow Food USA and, you know, how Slow Food was started in Italy where it was uh, most centrally focused on bringing it back to the earth. Why are we, you know, deviating from the land that is right in our own backyard? Why are we shipping things and exporting, you know, so much when we should just be trying to do the best with what we can make around us? 
Right. Um, and I don't want to um, just cut off from the last question on Heritage Foods USA because, uh, you know, they're, you know, um, you know, part founders of this network. But um, I'd like to hear about some of the other um, people that come to mind that, that help this movement along. I think, um, you know, there are a couple others. I mean, the ALBC, without them, you know, gosh, only knows what we might have lost before we ever even got around to realizing how tasty it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and organizations like Slow Food, the Raft Initiative, you know, oh, yeah. Chef Collaborative. Those the are Arc all of Taste. Just, the Arc of Taste, yes. All those have gone so far into raising awareness. You know, and that's the first step. Unless you're aware of something, you can't change it and you can't do anything about it. So I think that's, you know, that's the first few things that come to my mind. Okay. Now, <clears throat> another another thing that I want to I want to get your input on is why do you think biodiversity in the food system is so important? I mean, what is the likelihood of a pathogen coming along and wiping out say the broad-breasted white? And if if such an event were to occur, would such an extermination be comparable in impact and likelihood to say something like an Irish potato famine? Well, I think biodiversity is important on a lot of levels. Um, you know, the first thing is if you've got all your eggs in one basket, you know, to, to make a cliche, mm-hmm. and you drop that basket, you know, mm-hmm. you're pretty much out of luck. And I think it's the same thing with biodiversity. And I think, um, you know, you talked about the likelihood of a, a pathogen coming along. I mean, I think those things already exist. And mm-hmm. we all know and we've seen recently how fast and how you know, dangerously viruses can mutate. Oh, yeah. You know, H1N1. And I, I mean. Exactly. You know, so, I mean, I think it's there, and I think the potential is very, very real. I don't want to go all, you know, Robin Cook on, on anybody, but, you know, I think we'd probably be frightened if we really knew, you know, what all was out there. And I think the, you know, the diversity is one of the key things to keeping a lot of those things at bay. I mean, it's a little scary, and I don't actually have any statistics in front of me, and maybe you may know a little bit more about this, but um, what about food that is um, actually inspected by, you know, like the FDA and things like that? Is it, I mean, how safe can we feel that, you know, these commodity producers are actually following guidelines that keep our food supply safe? Well, um, I think just this morning we heard on the news that there had been another recall of contaminated beef. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think I think people do the best they can, but I think in an industrial system there's just a lot of opportunity for mistakes to get made and accidents to happen. Corners and being cut. Corners being cut. You know, it, it's all about the dollar in industrial mm-hmm. food production. And so I think it's, you know, it's super easy and it's kind of scary. Uh, do you think the USDA... Um, p- sort of plays some favoritism in their expe- inspection standards with big big companies. I mean, is there sort of a scratch my back, I'll scratch yours philosophy between the USDA and their standards and the big, say, Bell and Evans, you know, the big the big meat producers in this country? Well, I don't have enough direct experience to really, you know, Speak answer that. that question. Mm-hmm. But you know, anytime you're dealing with the government, I think the potential <laughs> for that exists. <laughs> I, I would much rather look my food in the face and know the person that produced it than I would go to the store and buy something, no matter how many seals of approval it had on it. Completely agree <laughs> with you on that. I mean... So now, do you think that something like the Irish potato famine couldn't repeat itself because we now have more modern methods of putting the brakes on something like that? I mean, if a pathogen did arise, would we still be able to contain its damage on these big these big breeds that are being mass-produced or well, would they all go just like boom, boom overnight 
Well, I, I don't know that anything's going to go boom overnight, but it would be awfully easy for, you know, some glitch to really disrupt the food supply. And we live in such an urban society now mm-hmm. that it would be extremely disruptive for places like New York City um, that depend on, you know, food coming in and things like that. So I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential, you know, for things to go wrong. But the good news is with awareness, I think there's a lot of potential for things to go right, too. That's definitely true. I mean, I know that I was talking with someone recently about this show. They saw what would happen as the sea levels began to continue rising. Right. Exactly. And like how maybe one day New York City is going to have no choice but to have a garden on every rooftop, just like we right. have here in our radio studio. I mean, unfortunately, you're not here with us and we're talking to you from Kansas. But right on top of, uh, you know, these uh, shipping containers that we're broadcasting out of, we have... Um, varieties of herbs and tomatoes. Garden. I mean, it's beautiful. All heirloom. I mean, Alice Waters of Chez Panisse Foundation uh, granted uh, the restaurant here, Roberta's, where we broadcast out of uh, money to um, get this rooftop garden going. And, you know, who knows? Maybe this really is something that the future of this, of this city is going to have to hold. Oh, I agree. And I think that's so awesome that you guys are doing that. And I'm lucky I live in a very rural area. So I can have a huge garden and I don't have to worry about space constraints, but I think it's so neat that in the cities people are, are turning to that. And I think that's going to be key to uh, you know, having a little bit of control over our food supply. Yeah, definitely. And so compared to even a few years ago, though, this, as the American food movement has gathered steam, aren't things getting better for the, for these rare breeds and for sustainable foods, food production? I mean, is is that happening or seen, not so much? Yeah, or is this just sort of a is this sort of a for us by us movement that we think is spreading beyond our culture because we we're from because we're understanding it from within. Well, I think um, I think the increased awareness and the uh, turn to more local organic food has helped, but these breeds are in, in no way safe at all. Um, we still need a lot of increased awareness. We need people to consider buying locally more to actually go out and, like, look for piney woods beef or red wattle hog mm-hmm. or something like that. I mean, they, there needs to be an awareness of some of the differences that these breeds can provide, you know, the differences in flavor and consistency and, and that thing. But um, I think education is helping, but we still do have a long, long way to go. And I think um, I uh, was recently told that the average age of a farmer in America is 57. That number needs to decrease. I mean, that age, 57. Yes. I mean, what are we going to do if, um, you know, a bunch of 20-year-olds don't start to mix in with that with that exactly. number of older mm-hmm. farmers? I mean, honestly, we can't just let the, um, you know, position of, you know, having a job as a farmer die out on us. I mean, you can't just go to school for being a doctor, teacher, or a lawyer. You need to stick with your roots. And if you have a family that has been farming for generations, you need to kind of keep some interest in there. I mean, I know the Red Waddle producer that we interviewed a few weeks ago, Larry Sorrell, um, he's in his 70s. He has seven right. children. And I don't know which one of those children, if any of those children, are going to continue his legacy on his farm to, you know, continue the, you know, breeding of this Red Waddle. I mean, right. and that's really scary. We need it more is, young farmers. It is scary because I, I've heard dozens of stories, you know, with my time with the ALBC about how, you know, so-and-so's grandpa had these these cows or these 
pigs or something like that. And then when they were done, the kids weren't interested, the grandkids weren't interested, so they were just gone. And that happens more and more. You know, if the average age of a farmer is 57, mm-hmm. that means there's a lot that are older than that. I know. Sure. It's so scary. Sure, because there's, there's 20-somethings, 57s, and 70-somethings. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. But but I also think there's this sort of stigma attached to farming that it's somehow an anti-intellectual pursuit. And I do think that that's starting to change. I think that a lot of parents who hear that their sons or daughters want to be farmers are now seeing that it's very much an intellectual pursuit and it's it's not just a labor of love. And right. and I think if you have talked to very many farmers, um you know that it it is very intellectual and a lot of mm-hmm. these people have so much knowledge and so much wisdom. Very no well spoken. No place to pass it to. Mm-hmm. No, way, no one to pass it to. And one thing, actually, um, that I recently learned from someone, um, you know, you have all these people that are working with, like, futures, and they're working with these commodity farmers, um, you know, boards of trade to really, you know, talk to these farmers that are growing these crops and have, you know, their silos full of grain, and they're going to, like, lock in prices. And it's like you're talking on Wall Street. I mean, it's a whole nother yeah. language. So if we're yeah. only allowing these business people to come in and smoothly talk and, you know, um, try and convince these uh, commodity farmers that they're crop is going to be worth this because maybe the weather's going to be that it's right. not the same kind of intuition that our farmers that their grandparents taught them you know that this change in the weather could possibly mean this or couldn't possibly mean that i mean they're not trying right. to lock in a price they're trying to just get the best out of their harvest for a year they're not trying to come in as businessmen and you know maybe screw them for the next two years because they lock them into a price just as someone would you know trading a uh, uh, you know, internet stock. No, you're exactly right. And I won't even pretend to understand the commodities market. I guess that's where I'm kind of anti-intellectual because I just don't fundamentally understand how you can put food up as a commodity like you can stock in an airplane company. Exactly. So it just seems kind of intuitively wrong to me. I mean, because like, I definitely notice, you know, you're talking with farmers and let's say, you know, you're pig is not ready to go to market because it's a little underweight. Well, you fed this pig. You fed it, you know, um, a lot, you know, and you've spent a lot of money. You've invested in it. But if it goes to market and not the weight that you were expecting it to, you've probably lost money on bringing that pig to market before it's reached the average or the market weight that is desired by the farmer to make the money back on the pig he's produced. Right, and it doesn't fit that industrial processing niche, so you're going to, you know, be at a loss before you even start. So, yeah, yeah. it's tough. It's, it's really tough. It does. It goes back to education and, like, having more programs in the schools that, that teach people about the importance of, I mean, it's the same thing with math and statistics. It's understanding yields and knowing that, you know, your, your pig is going to produce this much and that you're going to allow it to live this many weeks. And they could do the same math as, you know, a broker company coming in and talking to a commodity farmer. So we need to, you know, reinvigorate um, the interest in a younger generation of people that, hey, what's so bad about being on, like, the most beautiful land and different parts of our country and overseeing, you know, the, the, the operations of these animals' lives each day? Of course it's hard work, but everything's hard work. Yep, it is. Otherwise, they'd call it recess. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, we have to wrap up here, but I want to ask you one last question, Colleen, if I may. What direction do you think this whole movement's going to take? Do you think that the higher price points on rare quality breeds are going to scare customers off? Or will the production and distribution become cheaper and therefore the cost, making it possible for an average consumer to buy you know, a higher quality product for the same price? 
Well, I do think price is an important factor, but I think what is important for people to understand is when they go down to their local farmer's market or their local meat retailer or you know anything local and they pay a little bit more for it, that's what that food costs. It's not propped up by government subsidies or cheap transportation or anything like that. That's what it costs that farmer, you know, to produce that food and, you know, maybe make a dollar or two on it. And so I think educating people about, you know, this is what your food really costs and this is why is going to go a long way towards that. And I think, you know, I do think we're probably always going to need some sort of industrial agriculture in some form or another. I mean, as many people as we are and as increasingly urbanized as we are, I think it's going to be real hard to depend on small farmers, but I think we could do it so much better than we do today, and I think that's where a lot of the education comes in. Mm-hmm. I agree, and I, I, can't, I applaud the efforts of the ALBC to work towards that goal. We don't have there's, our sound effects on right now, otherwise we give you a big standing ovation. <laughs> thank you, I appreciate that. They are a tremendous group of people, and they actually believe heart and soul in what they're doing, and if you've talked to any of them, you know, that passion and that dedication comes right through. So they're, they're a fantastic group of people. And same with these farmers that work, you know, with the American Livestock Breeders Conservancy and take those manuals on how to raise the heritage turkey. I mean, those resources are indefinitely valuable, for sure. Yes, um, they are. And I just would like, you know, we um, are pretty much done with our questions, but is there anything, you know, that you'd like to touch upon that, you know, really helps, like, drive home, you know, how we are independent as a heritage movement from this commodity movement? Is there one last word that you'd like to get in or anything that you'd like to add to this? Well, I think we've, you know, hit a lot of the the major points. I mean, the main thing, you touched on independence a little. Um, What can be more independent than going down to your farmer's market or ordering something from Heritage Food? Because those products are so far removed from the industrial commodity type market. You know, I mean, so that's that's a great way to say, you know, I'm independent. I want my food supply to be independent and uh, kind of celebrate the 4th of July. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. What, what, what kind of meats are you going to be eating on your 4th of July barbecue, Colleen? Um, what kind of meat are we going to barbecue? Mm-hmm. With us, it's rabbit all the way. <laughs> rabbit all the way. The rare hair barn, right? Yeah, you spoke that's to right. Eric a few weeks ago, right, yeah. Lorenzo? Yeah. Yep. Perfect. Well, Colleen, have a great 4th of July weekend. Thanks for such an awesome send-off. I really hope that we have you back on here again, maybe to talk, um, you know, with other farmers. We could bring you on. They could ask you questions. And maybe, you know, um, you said you're going to be on the board of the ALBC at least through the fall. You can help make some connections right here on our network. I'd be happy to do whatever I could to help. All right. Well, this has really been enlightening. I I really enjoyed speaking with you today. So have a really safe uh, weekend. I hope you get to see some fireworks, and we'll have you on again real soon. All right. Thank you guys so much. Take care, Colleen. Colleen. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.